Father, we just lift up this time as we get into your word. That, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak. That your Holy Spirit would open our minds, our ears, and our hearts to you. And we thank you and give this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I'm just going to go straight into the message. Um, I know some of you, most of you probably heard me say this. I don't remember if I did or not. But to share a little bit about myself, um, I used to take pride in saying that I don't cry in movies or TV shows. I took great pride in that. I don't care what movie it was, whether it's like Shin's List or My Girl or any of those things. You've ever seen those things? The tissues. But not me. I don't cry in movies. I don't cry in TV shows. I took great pride in that. I wanted to make sure I don't do that. Why was I so stubborn in that? Well, I wanted to be manly growing up. And you're always told men don't cry. Man, how many of you heard that before? Some of you, many of you, you too proud to raise your hand, okay? Maybe that's it. Well, that was the clear message as a boy growing up. You don't cry. Well, that was a problem for me. That was an issue for me. Because when I was a little boy, I tended to cry easily. I was a kind of an emotionally sensitive kid. I cried when I was upset. You know, you know that feeling when you're angry and then those waters, your eyes start to get watery? Oh, that's, that's uncomfortable. I started to cry when my feelings were hurt. I cried. I even cried when other people were arguing. Water, and that was kind of embarrassing. Right? So I was a very emotionally sensitive kid, and that bothered me. So I insisted, I am not going to be a crier. So whenever I watched a movie, watched a TV show, when I start to get a little emotional, stiffen up, nope. Because that's not what you're supposed to do as a man, right? That was my mentality growing up. It's kind of ironic, now that I'm a grown man, hate to admit it, well, maybe I, don't know, I shouldn't say hate to admit it, but I find myself now a little bit more sensitive. When I watch a movie, I watch a TV show, listen to a song, I'm not yet at the level of commercials, but I find myself being more emotionally sensitive as I got older. Now, I can't confirm or deny that I, I cry anymore off a TV show or a movie. I still fight it. And ironic that as I get older, and I've reached that point of saying I'm a man now, that I'm still emotionally sensitive. It's interesting how stereotypes and cultural norms affect how we think, right? There's stereotypes and cultural norms in every culture. And it's amazing how much it affects how we grow up, how we understand things, how we understand ourselves. And those norms and stereotypes even affect how we raise our children. Maybe you've all, if you're a parent, you've you've noticed this. I remember I became a parent at 22. And I was nervous, or my wife and I, we were 22. 
And I was nervous about raising daughters. I had my first child was a daughter. I was nervous because I had no idea how to raise a girl. I'm not a girl. I don't know what it's like, right? But even when our second child came and it was, was going to be a boy, he was going to be a boy, I was nervous about that too because, well, how do I raise a boy? I've never done that before. So all I had left to do is rely on those norms, those healthy norms that I thought was how you do it, right? All those norms that we grew up thinking of what it means to be a mother or a, a, a mother or a father and raising a son or a daughter. Now, speaking as a father, looking back, I have to admit there's mistakes that I made as a parent. I made some mistakes with my daughters and my son. The mistake wasn't that I gave my daughters dolls. That wasn't the mistake. It wasn't that I gave my son a football at birth. I even threw him a pass when he was born, but he dropped it. But it wasn't his fault, though. He was swallowed up, so he had no arms. You know, he couldn't catch it. That's not, that's not true. But I gave it to him when he, we laid him in the crib, though. That is true. My mistake was being too concerned with the stereotypical idea of femininity and masculinity with my daughters and my son. That was my mistake. My mistake wasn't giving them those things that we, we think of as girls or as, as things for girls and girls for, uh, things for boys. But my mistake was that I didn't emphasize enough fostering God-honoring masculinity and femininity. How to stand out as women of God and a man of God rather than fit the mold of what society and culture tells us what it's supposed to look like. Because I had it in my head, right? I want to raise either young men or young men and young women. But I came into the automatic idea of what it means to be a man or woman based on what society tells us. How to fit in. What that looks like. I wish I emphasized more with my daughters how to have strength and boldness like Queen Esther. I wish I emphasized more emotional vulnerability and openness like King David did. I got wrapped up things. And there was even times as a father, I held back affection with my kids because of an idea of what it means to be a father or to be masculine. It's amazing how society and culture affects how we do things, even as raising our kids, what our idea of being a man or a woman is. Where am I going with this? Most of you have been with us as we've gone on this journey, and I've mentioned several times how it's too easy for us to allow culture to influence our thinking, culture to influence what we believe, how we raise our kids, what we teach them. It's too easy to let them dictate how we do these things, and even how we see ourselves as men and women of God. We let them dictate it. Well, some may think, well, you know, Pastor Mike, isn't that what churches do? Right? Don't churches tell us how we ought to live our life, how to parent our kids, how we ought to think? 
right? And what's the difference? What's the difference between what churches do and what the world tells us to do? Well, the difference is who do you believe and trust? Who do you trust to tell you how you ought to do things, how you ought to think? Right? People allow society to dictate values and influence worldview because they may hold a PhD, agree on the wall, so maybe we should trust them. Or maybe they have a YouTube channel, they got a whole bunch of subscribers, a whole bunch of views, a whole bunch of likes. Maybe they're credible. We follow all these things. What's the difference? How do we know who to listen to? We've been looking at how the enemy, the enemy has a strategy to influence and to distort how we see ourselves as men and women of God. How we, are to be cre- how we are to understand what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And I mentioned about how his strategy. He has a strategy. He wants to devalue humanity. In other words, make creatures who will just obey desire, whatever we want to do. That's what we should do. Just obey your desires, just like animals, right? They do their instincts, whatever they pleasure, they pursue it. But at the same time, he wants to overvalue humanity, deceiving us to thinking, you know what? You dictate. You dictate what you want, who you want to be, how you ought to be. Almost like you're your own God. You determine for yourself what is good, what is right, what is acceptable. And so he uses this strategy and he affects us in these four ways. These four areas that really challenge our understanding of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And we talked about these four areas this past two months now. Selfish pride, to get us to say that we are our own gods, to focus on ourselves. He affects our self-image, so he'll distort how we see ourselves. When we look in the mirror, do we... we what God created, or do we say, like, you know what? That's a broken person. That's a distorted person. He affects our ideas of sexuality. And then the fourth area we'll get to in the coming weeks, our idea of life, the sanctity of life, how we value both life and death. A couple weeks ago, we looked at how sinful or sexual immorality came about. How, the, how sexual desires have been distorted over time. We looked at it in Romans chapter 1. We focused on sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is any sexual behaviors outside of God's design. Outside of God's design of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman reserved for the marriage relationship. That's what God's gift of sexuality and sexual intimacy is to be between a husband and a wife, a man and woman, within the marriage relationship. Outside of that is sexual immorality. And we saw in Romans chapter 1, Paul really broke it down at the origins of sexual immorality, that it's a byproduct, an example of the extent of a depraved mind, degrading passions, And he said how there were people who knew God. They knew God. But they dishonored God 
They failed to acknowledge God. They failed to appreciate God. So it led them to futile thinking, empty thinking. Or what if we can do whatever we want, right? That thinking led to what? A foolish heart that was darkened. And when your foolish heart is darkened, it will affirm all sorts of foolishness. And what did that lead to? It led to idolatry. It led to idolatry. What happened? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They began to worship all the creation rather than the creator. All the creation, all these things, they worshiped all these things, made all these idols, even themselves, over God. And what did that lead to? God said, look, I give, he's going to give them over to the lust of their hearts, to degrading passions, which eventually led to sexual immorality. So that's what we looked at two weeks ago. And if you think about today, the thinking today, right? If, all the, if, if we affirm all desires and inclinations to be acceptable and natural, then all deviant desires and behaviors must be acceptable. That's the trend we're going today, right? That's what we're doing today. If all desires and stuff is to be received as acceptable and natural, then all behaviors must be affirmed as well. That's the trend, and that's where we're going. That's what we're heading towards. And it's interesting when you think, when you never are presented truth, you're going to be vulnerable to all the lies. If you're never presented truth, you're going to be vulnerable to any kind of lie or anything that anyone says. And I think that's where we find ourselves today. This is where we find ourselves today. Because you have a generation of children growing up not knowing God. Right? God is taken out of the classrooms. God is taken out of the homes. Children are raised to not know God at all. So you have a generation of people, not just children, but adults. They're growing up. They don't know God. So they don't know the truth. So they're vulnerable to anything that anyone says. And what they're being told is that you follow whatever desire you feel inside. You pursue it. We affirm it. That's where the trend is. And I got to be honest. This is a lie from hell. This is an evil influence. We'll get to this later that we don't do this with our kids. As a parent, we don't just tell our kids, you know what, whatever you desire you go ahead. I'll affirm it. We don't do that to the people we love, yet that's where we're being told to do. I'll get to that in a second. So all this to say, right, this is kind of like a, a review of the last, uh, over the weeks. And I asked, you know, what we're left with. How are we to live in this broken world? Right? We, we saw how, the, how God views things, the biblical worldview and the secular worldview. How are we to live in this broken world as believers in Christ? How do we live a God-honoring life in an overly sexualized world? It's everywhere. I had com- we had conversations with our daughter before we ever thought we would have those, such conversations. 
But we have to because the world is saturated with this topic and this message. So how are we to live in this broken world? I mentioned before, a secular worldview says accept and affirm your desires to experience Okay. There's a secular worldview, and then there's a biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview says honor God with desires that are pleasing to him. That's indicative of a child of God. Live according to the image and likeness of God. You see the difference? The secular worldview says you pursue your desires. You set what your image is. You set the values. But the biblical worldview says, no, no, no. Honor God with your desires. Be pleasing to him. And live according to what the image and likeness of God is. That's the two differences. And we looked at how the biblical worldview, God does not affirm any deviation from his design and purpose. There's nowhere in the Bible that affirms any deviation from what God had established. So how should we live? I'll take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So Paul says here, this is the will of God. This is God's desire for you, is your sanctification. What is sanctification? That's one of those big biblical words, those big Christian words. It means your purification, your purification of heart and life, that God sets you apart for holiness. That's his desire. God's desire for us is that we do not struggle with our sin. That's not God's desire. His desire isn't for us to struggle with desires that we ought not to have. But the will of God, this is what he desires for us, that we experience healing, that we experience forgiveness, restoration, as the Holy Spirit works in us. And he brings us through this process each and every day of our life. All throughout our life is a stage of process to make us more like Christ. To be forgiven, to be made whole. See, God meant for us to be set apart for God. 
But what sin did to us, and when sin entered, and our propensity, our, our, our tendency to do whatever we desire that's contrary to God, that set us, separated us from God. But that's not what God wanted. God's desire is to bring us to him and set us apart for him. Our sinful desires separated us from God. But praise the Lord. Praise God that he didn't leave us in our sin. That Jesus came to be our atoning sacrifice. What does that mean? He paid the price for our sin. He took the penalty for our sin. How many of you have siblings here? Or maybe they're not here, but how many of you have siblings? How many of you watch your sibling get in trouble with your parents? How many of you sat back and kind of giggled? <clears throat> Got in trouble. All right, by the smiles, I could tell you yeah, that was common. How many of you who snickered stood up and said, Mom, Dad, yeah, they're, they're, they, they deserve penalty. But I want to take their punishment for them. Any of you do that? No one? Of course not. But yet that's what Christ did for us. He took our penalty for sin so that we can have restoration and forgiveness to be made whole, to not carry guilt and not carry guilt before God when we stand in judgment. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Paul says in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We're here today to celebrate people's baptism. What does that mean? What does the baptism mean? It means that you, they affirm that their faith in Christ, that through Christ's death, their sin was taken care of on the cross. And when Jesus was buried, their sin was buried with him. But when Jesus rose from the dead, they also rise in newness of life, made clean, made whole. Jesus took care of their sin, not just their worst sin, right? It wasn't just like, all right, I will cover your worst sin. Tell me your worst sin, and that's what I'll take care of. No, no, no. It wasn't even just some sin, all of our sin. Not only what we did, but even what we will do. Because we're not going to be perfect. After you get baptized, for those of you who are getting baptized, when you come out of the water, I don't know if angels are singing. We may not hear it. You won't have a halo over your head, and you won't walk around on clouds, and you won't be, won't be perfect all the time. But the Holy Spirit is with you to help you, to enable you to do what is right and pleasing to the Lord. So here we see in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is talking to the believers in Christ, and he's reminding them how they're supposed to live. This is the will of God, that you abstain from immorality. That word for immorality, particularly sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
So what does our sanctification look like? What does it look like to be living a life that's pleasing to the Lord? You abstain from immorality. Let's see if this works. It's not, oh, oh. All right, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I gotta admit, all right, let me take a quick pause. If we can freeze time. Uh, actually, I'm not going to. We're already going long. All right, let me unpause. Time's up. What does sanctification look like? He says, look, possess your own body and sanctification and not in honor and not in lustful passion. Discipline your body, abstain from immorality. Present your bodies to honor the Lord and not according to the passions and desires that are lustful. Don't obey those passions like those who do not know God. Those who do not know God, there's no restraint. He says, don't do like them. Now, I shared with those of you that uh, we got a new Golden Shepherd, or Golden Shepherd, a German Shepherd puppy. That's not our puppy. This is Max. That's our new German Shepherd puppy. He's three months old. He's the size of, like, an adult. <laughs> now, if you've ever had a puppy, or if you ever had a baby, because it's virtually the same thing, right? If you ever have a puppy or you have a baby, it's almost the same. You spend about 40% of your day just trying to make sure they don't put things in their mouth they shouldn't, right? This dog, he goes around, something in his mouth he shouldn't have. He's like, you know? So what do you have, Max? You go over there and pull out wrappers, pulling out rocks, you're pulling out all these kind of things. But that's what dogs do. That's what babies do, Right? They see something, they don't know any better. Ooh, take. Ooh, taste, right? What if we just let our puppy just eat whatever he wants? Just say, you know what, Max? No restraints. Wants, dog. Taste it. Have it. You want that wrapper? Go for it. Of course not. Because the dog will die. If we let our babies put whatever they want in their mouths, their ba- our babies will die. Doesn't take a whole lot of thinking to do that. We talked about the dangers of hedonism. It's very deceptive. Dangers of hedonism, right? You pursue whatever pleasure. Pleasure is your God. But the danger is not all pleasure is good, Right? Not all pleasure is good. And not all desires are good. And not all desires are honoring to the Lord. In fact, not all pain is bad, right? If you experience pain, that's a warning sign that tells you something is wrong. So what is Paul saying? Discipline yourselves. 
to not be governed by just your desires, your passions, your lustful passions, that you do whatever you want or whatever you think you want. We didn't become Christians so that we can do whatever we want. So now that I have Christ, now that I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want. No, no. We weren't given freedom to do whatever we want. We were set free so we could be pleasing to God. We were set free so we can be pleasing. I'm free to do as you want, to please you, to honor you. And we see Paul emphasizes this in verse 3 and verse 7. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. That's God's desire for us. So let me talk to three categories of people. What are we, how are we supposed to live? Let me talk to three categories of people. Maybe you fit into one of these categories today. Perhaps you t- hearing or seeing, you're a skeptic, you're a doubter. Maybe that's you. You're not sure what to make of this whole Jesus thing. You don't know whether you or not. And whether you don't, you don't know. You're not sure what to believe. Maybe you're a conflicted Christian today. You believe in Jesus, but you're still navigating on how to reconcile biblical worldview and secular worldview. How do I be a Christian in today's world? Or maybe you're a confident Christian today. There's no wavering for you in faith today. You're certain of your faith, you're certain on the issues, and you're confident today. Maybe you fit one of those three categories today. I want to speak to the unbeliever, the skeptic, the doubter. Paul says, for those outside of Christ, before we were in Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What does Paul say? Before Christ, we were dead in our sins. There was no life in us. That's who we were before Christ. We walked according to whatever the course of the world told us to walk. We walked according to whatever the enemy led us to do. And we walked according to the lusts of our flesh. Whatever we had desired, that's what we pursued. That's who we were before Christ. That's who we are outside of Christ. But he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we're drunk. I'm going to use the mic. It's coming in and out. Just going to use this. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places to Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us to Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now there's a lot. What is he saying here? God is rich in mercy and loves us with a great love. If you're not sure what to deal with Christ, Christianity, Jesus, know this. God is rich in mercy and loves us with a great love. That salvation is through faith in Christ and we are to live by the good works that God has established as his workmanship. Can you think of that? That God would consider you his workmanship? Any of you deal with your work, you work with your hands? Any of you work with your hands? You're an artist, you're in construction, you make models, whatever it is. Do you know what it's like to make something that's your workmanship? That you crafted with your own hands? with your own mind, and you elevate it up and say, now that is my masterpiece. That's God's desire for you, that you would be his masterpiece. And the gospel message for the unbeliever is clear. You are dead in your sins before Christ, but he wants to give you new life. Forgiveness, make you clean, make you whole. That's his desire for you. To the unbeliever, the skeptic, the one you're struggling with your faith, I want you to ponder this. Who do I follow? Who do I believe? What am I patterning my life after? The world or Jesus? God or the futility, the emptiness of this world? Which promises more fulfillment? God or the pursuits of this world? Think about those questions. To the conflicted Christian, do you struggle with these questions? What should I affirm? How do I draw the line in this world today? How much can I compromise and still be a Christian? Doesn't God's love mean loving people who they are? Maybe you've been conflicted by some of these questions. If that's you today, 1 Thessalonians ought to be a very strong admonition for us that God's will is for our sanctification, to be more like Christ, and that God's truth cannot be compromised, and we can't tolerate God's truth to be twisted and distorted. We must affirm the truth of God's word over the feelings of people. God's approval must be valued more than man's approval, even if that means our loved ones. We have to be willing to say, I have to affirm the truth of God's word and value God over even the feelings and thoughts of even the people I care for. Jesus says in John 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me 
because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Luke 9, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. We have to be willing as Christians answer, are we willing to be hated for the sake of Jesus' name? Are you? Are you willing to be hated? Are you willing to lose friends and relationships over Christ's name? If you hesitate answering that question, I think you need to ponder more who Jesus is. Right? You have to really think about who Jesus is. Because if I'm hated for standing up for Jesus and the gospel, I feel like I'm doing something right. And if I'm representing the Lord faithfully and honorably, I must be willing to take the heat and all the smoke that comes with it. Do you want to say, all right, if you're going to hate me because I affirm Christ and his word, I have to be willing to accept that. I have to be willing to stand firm for God's word. But I want to say this, though, and this is important. Conviction does not have to come at the cost of grace and compassion. Conviction does not have to come at the cost of grace and compassion. You can have strong conviction, but show grace and compassion. The one who's screaming at you needs Jesus. And kindness and peace should not be abandoned while being on the right side of an issue. Right? We can show kindness and be peace when we're on the right side of an issue. If someone is vehemently disagreeing, we can show kindness and peace. I listened to different testimonies of people who identified as LGBTQ and later came to faith in Christ. I listened to some stories of others who transitioned and then detransitioned and they came to Christ. And I saw some of these interviews and they were asked, they were all asked this question, what advice would you give Christians who knew people who identified as LGBTQ? And each referred to Christians who showed them sweetness and kindness towards them. It's interesting, you know, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named Beckett Cook. He was, he was part of the Hollywood industry, and he was in part of the, the behind-the-scenes stuff. But he came to Christ. He, um, he was a, a gay man who came to Christ. And he said this, that Jesus was a master at balancing grace and truth, clear conviction and truth. And he had an interview with this young lady named Sophia Galvin. And really her answers really follow anyone who doesn't know the Lord. But he asked her this question, what would you tell parents who has a child who's conflicted, questioning? And she said this, she said, one, be led by the Holy Spirit. Make sure you're led by the Holy Spirit. But she said, two, remember it's a spiritual issue that they're in bondage. 
Why does she say that? Because she identified that in herself. Third, she said, leave it to prayer. Pray, pray, and pray. Four, she said, show them love and compassion. But the last important, she said, don't bend and fold from the truth. Don't bend and fold from the truth. You can show conviction and still show love and compassion. Then she was asked, well, what do you say to the girl? The girl who's considering transitioning. She said, one, I want her to know God loves her. Make sure they know that God loves them. And then she said, there is a, tell them, make sure that they know that there is a way out in Christ. She says, develop a personal relationship with Jesus and place your identity in Jesus. The last thing she said, this, meaning the transitioning, will not give you what you need. This is from someone, I can't relate to her struggles, but this is her testimony. This is what I would tell a Christian. Stand firm in the truth, because they need to know the truth, but show love and compassion and kindness and pray. Pray, pray, pray. To the confident Christian, stand firm. Ephesians 6.11, Paul says, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He goes on in verse 13, Therefore stand up in the full arm, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to what? Stand firm. And then verse 14, a third time, he says, stand firm. For those of us who are secure in our faith, we know where we stand. I charge us, as Paul charges us, stand firm. Don't compromise. But stay humble. Stay humble. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. You may not struggle with certain sins like another person, but don't think you're so strong and so secure that you won't fall into either their sins or your own. Stay humble. Don't think that you're so strong that you can't fall yourself. Or that you can cover the sins that you struggle with. The last thing I will say, don't take attacks personally, but do not make personal attacks. If you're hated for your faith, if you're hated for Christ's name, don't take it personally. But don't take personal attacks either. If someone's hateful, if someone is raising, elevating the heat, you don't need to match it. Don't take it personally. 
Don't look down at certain people. It's like, whoa, now that person is way out. Look at that person's sin. Yikes. I'm glad that's not me. See them, love them, and pray for them. Show that grace. I'll end with this, and I'll wrap up these last few weeks that we've been looking at. People may be experiencing pain, dissatisfaction, confusion, and they're given the wrong diagnosis. Right? If you're feeling pain, confusion, frustration, emptiness, dissatisfaction, confusion, and you're listening to the world, you got the wrong doctor. And you're going to get the wrong diagnosis and the wrong treatment plan. We need to go to Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Our fulfillment is in Christ. He shows us what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to honor him. And that's who we need to look to. He is the truth. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, I know the enemy does not want to hear us, hear this message, us to hear this message, Lord. And I know there are a lot of hurting people. Maybe they've been fighting you, resisting you, or maybe they just feel lost themselves. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would move in the hearts and minds of each person. If they, know, if they don't know you, Jesus, as their Savior, I do pray they would recognize their need for you and believe in you, place their faith and trust in you, their lives to you, that you may be their Savior and Lord, that they may find forgiveness and mercy if there's people who are conflicted today, maybe they know somebody who's struggling in sin and struggling with desires, they don't know how to reach them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in them with kindness and compassion and wisdom and know how to show your love without harshness, without hatred, but with your love and certainty of your word. Help us, Lord God, to stand firm in our faith in you, Lord God, to be defenders of your word, but in love and kindness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.